Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 12, 1 Samuel, chapter 8. Last week, we began a bit of a detour that is going to circle back and intercept Samuel chapter 8 the next time we meet. Now, please be patient. Okay, this detour is a needed one. At least, apparently, the Lord thinks it is. Uh, it revolves around how to deal with a pretty sticky theological issue that's at the core of the remainder of 1 Samuel, then 2 Samuel, and the two books of the Kings. And the issue is, how are we to understand that God, up to now, has supposedly warned Israel against the prospects of having a king over them, which is seen as rejection of him, but that God will soon not only appoint Israel a king, but even, have, uh, even make having a, a king at the heart of his plan for mankind's redemption from that point forward. Even after the end of history, I guess, as far as we know. The problem is that this issue has tentacles that stretch out in many directions depending on how we decide to deal with it. And as a result, most of the times, frankly, it's glossed over. Because as I said last week, when we pull back the covers on it, a pretty major can of worms is exposed. Now, as we've examined the Torah together, and then we've moved well into the establishment and progress of Israel, we've seen many changes and a lot of misadventures of the Hebrew people. And one of the several themes that we see playing out in Israel's history is this perpetual revolving door of periods of faithfulness to God followed by apostasy, then by God permitting Israel's enemies to oppress them, and then Israel recognizing that the cause of their oppression is both a natural and a divine result of their idolatry and rebellion. And so following their confession and repentance, Jehovah demonstrates his mercy by rescuing and delivering them. And thus they are once again operating in harmony with the God of Israel, at least for a little while. Now it seems that Israel was always in the midst of denial about their spiritual condition. They didn't want to hear about it. Thus, they were always in the midst of idolatry because they couldn't see themselves as idolatrous. They never stopped loving the Lord, at least they didn't in their own minds. Even though they did adopt questionable practices into their society and, and worship, they brought in activities they shouldn't have. Things that were modeled after their Gentile neighbors. Things that the Lord has warned repeatedly that he found offensive and ought to be shunned. And I told you last week that from a biblical perspective, idolatry wasn't even so much about pagans as it was about God's set-apart people. Now, I'm thankfully part of our Savior's church 
as are most of you listening to me. Yet I find myself in this ironic and very uncomfortable situation in that as one who's as equally guilty as to those to whom I speak, I have no choice but to admonish and the Lord has made it clear to me that as much as I love the church and I'm a member of Christ's Ecclesia, I have to speak a word of warning. That we are not immune from that same perpetual cycle from which the Israelites could never seem to extricate themselves. That cycle of a period of faithfulness to God followed by apostasy, then oppression, then repentance, and finally deliverance. The question for us as believers is not whether we are, as the congregation of God, are currently caught within one of those cycles, but rather whether or not this is the final one before Messiah comes again. Now, I don't know if this is the final cycle. But I have no doubt that we are in and nearing the end of the apostasy stage of our current cycle and we're about to enter into the oppression stage. Apostasy, some of you will claim. Apostasy? I don't see any apostasy. Apostasy... If it's happening, that's much too strong of a word for it. And even if I do see some amount of apostasy, I'm certainly not involved in it in any way. It's all those other Christians. It's not me. And I'm going to tell you, my friends, that, that, that this was every Israelite's position and attitude until the enemy's oppression bore down upon them with greater and greater intensity, and then calamity finally struck, all at once. I'll also tell you, what is so odd about all this, is that it is our human nature that we will deny and defend our personal role and responsibility and involvement until full-blown catastrophe strikes us, and then we'll instantly recognize what has happened. And then our hearts sink because we'll know what we've done. Our defenses will grow mute. Our denials will turn to confession. But it'll be too late. Not too late to repent. Just too late to avoid the very serious consequences of these actions. Now, what enables us as believers to be such adept and professional deniers? You know, there's a, there's a whole number of ingredients that goes into our natural ability to deny the obvious, and I'm not about to try and address them all, because I probably don't even know them all. But the one that is pertinent to today's lesson is the combination of false doctrines and air-filled traditions that have arisen from men's minds and that have served to push out and replace God's Word as the source of truth within our beloved church. 
Now, we spoke at length last week about two major innovations within Christianity that had a profound effect on the progress and nature of the church over the past 2,000 years. And the creation of the notion of... uh, of orthodoxy versus heresy was one of them and the other was the evolution of modern systematic theology. Now both of these innovations are similar to most man-made institutions. They can be used for good and they can be used for evil. So there's nothing inherently wrong with the notion of orthodoxy and heresy nor is there a Christian uh, systematic theology. In fact... Both of these notions and and innovations can be traced back to the church's response to some kind of a threat to its existence and viability. And you know what? Had we lived in those times, we would likely have responded in a very similar manner. Now recall that orthodoxy, as applied to Christianity, is just a set of non-negotiable beliefs, we call them doctrines today, that a particular denomination or branch of the church has established for itself. Heresy is to strongly question or perhaps even reject one or more of those beliefs. So if a member of one of those congregations violates or otherwise rebels against the orthodoxy, then technically they're a heretic. Now the consequences can range from admonishment, to re-education that hopefully leads to repentance, to excommunication. In the days of old, it was rather common that it could lead to execution. Now, there is today, depending on whose count you use, about 3,000 Christian denominations or sects worldwide, each of them having a somewhat different orthodoxy. Of course, at times, those differences can be minuscule and nearly impossible to detect from what we might believe. And at other times, the differences form an impassable gulf. And so I left us with this question last week, of how we as believers are to determine which, if any, of those 3,000 sets of church doctrines, church orthodoxies, is correct. But I also left us with the thought that perhaps the question itself of finding the one Christian congregation with the one and only true orthodoxy is based on some false assumptions born out of the way we tend to read and then assimilate the Bible and the way these orthodoxies and doctrines were actually arrived at in the first place. Now, modern systematic theology was a response to the threat of the European Enlightenment that sought to gut the church of its spirituality and by means of of ushering in secular humanism to kind of replace it. Now, Now, since this was the era when intellectualism and the scientific method were established as the best of all possible protocols for the discovery of uh, truth, the church felt it had to find a systematic way to present itself that would be acceptable to the new enlightened society. And yet, 
the same time retain its spirituality and its reliance on faith in God. And the system that was created divided the essence of Christianity into about ten elements and then each of the ten elements was given a category and a name and the church endeavored to answer key questions about Christianity that each of these ten or so elements would naturally ask. Now, of course, by now, at the time of the Enlightenment, the Catholic Church was no longer the only accepted church. The Church of England was very powerful. The Protestant Church was well established, and the Protestant Reformation had occurred. And so there were already a substantial and growing number of competing branches of church in the West. And in general, each of these various branches had already formed their own and somewhat separate orthodoxies. Systematic theology simply offered a new route and a different method to forming an orthodoxy. And therefore, by hopefully hopefully fending off these dangers of this this enlightenment philosophy. Now, that we have more or less 3,000 differing sets of Christian orthodoxy ought to be a clue that as good as was the intent, there is an inherent and probably unavoidable flaw within the very nature of how modern systematic theology has evolved. It is far too simplistic to, to conclude that one Christian denomination holds all the truth and therefore 2,999 are based on error. How did we arrive at, a, at such a place of confusion and of the splintering of the church in every direction. What is the flaw that has developed to cause such a, a terrible and unintended result? Now before I give you a way to think about that issue, let me remind you why I'm attempting this detour in the first place. It's because believers are today confronted by a new and well-accepted form of Bible academia called literary criticism that says that the books of Samuel and Kings have been corrupted and so they can't be taken at face value. And this assumption is mostly because in those writings we find two opposing views and agendas on the question of Israel having a human king. We haven't run into that yet, which is why we're stopping here at, at, uh, at the 8th chapter of Samuel, because right now we're about to. Now, one view is that they should have a king and that God's okay with this. The other view is that Israel should not have a king and God is most certainly not okay with this. And because when we read these books, we do seem to see such a conflict, we must conclude that either God has changed his mind or the texts are indeed suspect. So I want to show you that we don't have to accept one or the other of those conclusions at all. 
Rather, there is a better solution. And it's really all wrapped up in how we ought to approach extracting meaning from the Bible anyway. Now, here's the thing. The notion of orthodoxy and heresy that is today expressed within modern systematic theology, the basis for practically all Christianity, has followed a path that allows for fewer and fewer gray areas. The required answers to the ten categorical elements of systematic theology must be firm and unequivocal. I don't know. Or it can be either A, B, or C, or some combination of them is simply no longer acceptable. Let me illustrate this matter. Systematic theology looks into the scriptures, primarily the New Testament scriptures, to find answers to the questions posed from each of those ten categories. There are, of course, a number of Bible verses that addresses each one of these issues. Sometimes they do so very directly, sometimes a little bit indirectly. Allow me to give you just four familiar examples of subjects that are typically addressed by systematic theology. The law, eternal security, the Sabbath, and the deity of Christ. I'm just picking four. Now, I'm going to demonstrate to you shortly what you really already know. That there are several verses spread throughout the New Testament that addresses each of these subjects, and they're usually not the same. And it's also not the same principle, merely being repeated to us um, in a different verse. Rather, slightly different aspects of each subject are brought up and brought to light. But due to the modern way that systematic theology has been implemented, a rigid and well-defined answer is required. An answer that becomes the accepted doctrine for that subject. And the answer is established when a contingency of a particular denomination's leaders feel that they have defined that which best reflects what's intended by the passages of Scripture concerning that particular subject when, when they're all weighed out as a whole. Okay? Now, a visual illustration of this development of systematic theology for a denomination might be thought of as the construction of a wall. All right? A high, straight wall. And on one side of the wall lays the denominational orthodoxy, and on the other side lurks heresy. On the one side is truth, the other side is error. You're either on one side or the other. There's sure in any middle ground. Now, like the wall I'm using in my graphic presentation here, a wall, by the way, that's separating uh, Israel from the Palestinian territory, it is a narrow, but it's a strong wall, and there is no such thing as being partly in and partly out. You're either here, or you're there, or you're nowhere. 
Now, this is a pretty good illustration of how systematic theology effectively operates as a wall that is constructed segment by segment for the purpose of establishing a good, straight, understandable boundary that divides orthodoxy from heresy, truth from error. Let me give you another example of how modern systematic theology works towards an outcome. Let's together create an imaginary systematic orthodoxy to define a car. That doesn't sound too aggressive. First question in our systematic orthodoxy. What does a car do? Answer. It transports people. Right? So, doctrine number one. A car must carry people to where they want to go. Second question. How many people does a car carry? Well, depending on where you look. There's evidence that maybe it's two. Maybe it's four. If you drive the freeways of Los Angeles, you're sure it's only one. It could be six. It could be eight. But the bulk of the evidence is that most cars carry four people. And since our systematic orthodoxy for a car demands a firm and not a broad answer, and the most usual number of passengers for the cars that were selected for examination, for our examination, is four, our second doctrine is a car must hold four people. Question number three, what color is a car? Looking again at our car sample, we see a variety of colors. But with a little bit of observation, we can soon see that 40% or more of all cars are white, and the next most is black at 20%, and the remainders of other cars of other colors is significantly smaller. Since we can't have any gray areas, we have to pick the one best answer. The best answer we can give is white. Because there's more white cars by far than any other color. Doctrine number three. A car must be white. Question number four. How many doors does a car have? Well, after some study, it seems as if the number of doors on a car, depending on the situation, is either two, four, or five. And if one considers the door at the rear of certain cars a door, or if the sliding doors on a van are even considered doors or not, well, that's another systematic argument. It's not even close. Some cars do have four, uh, two doors. A few have, few less have, do have five. But the vast majority of cars have four doors. Doctrine number four. Cars have four doors. I think this is enough to pause and see what our current systematic car orthodoxy is without venturing into the several other categories that naturally will give us a much more complete definition of a car. So our systematic car is this. Cars carry people to where they want to go. In fact, cars carry four people, and cars are to be white in color and have four doors. What if I want to buy a car that only carries two people? No, that's probably heretical. Because cars are supposed to carry 
four people. Maybe even a car that carries two isn't even a car. How about if I'd like a red car that does carry four people instead of a white one? Oh, no, 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 no. A real car is red. I mean, it's white. A, a, a red, red is obviously indicative of something else. Maybe of pride. Maybe of evil. How about if I want a more practical car that carries seven people and has five doors? Oh my gosh, no. Not only can that probably not even be a car, according to our systematic definition of a car, but to even consider indicates maybe, maybe you need some additional instruction on car orthodoxy. Okay, you get the picture. Now, no analogy I can give you is perfect, and I don't mean to poke too much fun at systematic theology because there's nothing inherently bad about it. I just wanted to lighten things up a little bit. And my intent is not to demean brilliant Bible scholars and good men who participate in designing it. But I think this analogy of a wall along with establishing a car orthodoxy, is is somewhat representative of how a systematic theology is approached in principle. But I remind you, and this is important, this kind of mindset is not how the ancient Hebrews, nor how Judaism up to the time of Christ at least, ever envisioned establishing the revelation of truth from Holy Scripture. Rather, they recognized that for practically any subject, we can envision that the Scriptures give us some number of aspects about that subject as boundaries for dealing with it. But systematic theology, the modern version of it, demands by its nature, a nature that demands a rigid orthodoxy, that we can choose only the best one of the several aspects of each subject as preeminent, and the other aspects are therefore given less weight or deemed irrelevant, because they don't agree with our choice. But of course, sometimes after you've chosen the answers to the first four or five or six categories, it narrows the possible range of choices you could even make about the remaining questions because an answer that doesn't take the previous categorical answers into account could easily lead to a set of doctrines that conflict with each other. Let me give you a real-life example of that. When I was putting together this lesson, I wanted to examine a pretty substantial sampling of differing views on this subject of orthodoxy, heresy, and systematic theology. And one website I went to, operated by a person who many of you would recognize as well-respected and known, had a section of his website that discussed the important doctrinal subject of eternal security. And the lesson began by explaining that we were going to examine a variety of scriptures, some of which supported one side of the matter and others which might support the opposite view, so that one could come to an informed conclusion. And a column labeled 
once saved, always saved, listed about 30 scriptural verses the author felt were representative and supportive of his belief that once a person was saved, they could not lose their salvation by any means. There was a second column. The second column was labeled, You Can Lose Your Salvation. And under it, there were no scriptural entries. Only a couple of sentences that said, Since you cannot lose your salvation, there is no point to examining scriptures that seem to say you can because it would just lead to an improper interpretation. Now, no way do I want to paint all systematic theology as that blatant in attempting to just close off dialogue on a very important theological issue. But in, really, in many respects, the end effect at times is just the same. See, the rationale of the exact actual example that I just gave you is that if you're satisfied that verses A, B, and C provide the answer to your theological question, then there is no point in considering verses D, E, and F that also discuss the same subject, but they offer a little different perspective. Or better, if the leadership has decided that of all possible choices, A is true and shall be our doctrine, then to even examine B is a waste of time, maybe it's even heretical. My wife, she's not here as she could. Um, My wife has a running joke about me that she enjoys tormenting me with. And she uses it occasionally to put me in my place. And it involves her perception of how I view the rules concerning the role of the man of the house. And it goes something like this. House rule number one. Tom is always right. House rule number two. If Tom is ever wrong, refer to rule number one. You get the idea. So back to our analogy of a wall built of systematic doctrines. What we have with the way that modern systematic theology operates is that there are perhaps 3,000 or so denominational walls. And in each case, one must choose not only which is the right wall, but then you have to decide which side of the wall you're going to stand on. And since there is generally but one preeminent and best answer to each categorical systematic question, it is the answers to each of those questions that forms the basis of each one of these walls. But was the Bible actually created in such a way that this was how we're supposed to use it? Is that how it was intended that we find truth? Is this the best means to arrive at the set of answers that, when taken together, lays out the divine truth about our Christian faith and how to operate within it? I think there's another way to approach the issue of searching the scriptures for truth, and it is not as if we are building a tall, straight, and impenetrable defensive wall, but rather as though we are creating 
a sheepfold. See, it's this mindset that the ancient Hebrew scholars and the first generation of believers in Messiah Yeshua looked at the Bible. And I'm firmly persuaded that this is the path back to the days before the notion of orthodoxy and heresy wormed its way into our beloved church and set us on a long path towards disunity and confusion that we see among our brethren today. A wall has only two sides, in or out, orthodoxy or heresy. On the other hand, a sheepfold creates a safe, definable area in which to freely operate. And in the process, it creates boundaries and limits to surround us. A sheep operating within a sheepfold has a great deal of latitude and liberty to stand at one end or the other of the sheepfold or to move about or to move from the top left to the top right and then to the center. Anywhere within that sheepfold, he chooses to stand. The sheep is within authorized boundaries as defined by the shepherd who built the sheepfold. And thus the sheep is safe. Now, might some sheep prefer to stand at one spot in the sheepfold because for them it just seems more comfortable there? Certainly. Might it be that all the other sheep think exactly alike? Ten million bodies in one mind and have all the same preferences? No. Not likely. But it doesn't matter. Because all the sheep honor the boundaries created by the shepherd. Just because some prefer the north end and others the south and still others the center doesn't mean that some are in and others are out and that some are right and the others are wrong. Applying the sheepfold metaphor to how worshipers of God ought to read and perceive Holy Scripture. If we can refrain from seeing every theological subject as a coin with one side, and through the filter of assumptions based on a particular orthodoxy heresy, then our minds and consciences can be freed and we can begin to take notice that most of the questions we can ask about Christianity that helps us to ascertain the perfect and divine truth that the Lord has graciously provided for us is constructed more like a sheepfold and not a defensive wall. How can it be that any and every theological question can have so many opposing answers from fine Bible scholars and godly men. And each denomination that holds to one answer or the other is unwilling to budge and thus sees all the others as the result of error. And that without hesitating, each denomination is able to point to a scripture verse 
that indeed does seem to validate their point of view. Because while that scripture verse does indeed exist, it is also unconsciously perceived as a necessary block added to a defensive wall rather than the addition of another post out of the many posts that forms the safe inner area of a sheepfold. The orthodoxy heresy system is the champion of the my verse is better than your verse filter by which the Bible is more typically read and doctrines are established and debated. I emphatically say to you today that the place we've arrived at in Christianity whereby rigid soundbite answers to complex, multifaceted theological questions has had the unintended consequence of stunting our spiritual growth and creating an atmosphere of disunity and thus has fractured the fellowship of God's people. Now before I give you an example of the sheepfold method of reading the Bible so that I'm not misunderstood, I need to say a couple things. I am not speaking about embracing tolerance as it's, in, as it's defined today. I'm not talking about accepting as valid some liberal church doctrines that simply disregard the scriptures altogether and replace it with some fine-sounding philosophy. I'm also not suggesting that I have discovered something new or perfect or have a better doctrine. Second is that while a sheepfold does offer a substantial area of freedom to roam around in, there remains an outside. And if one ventures outside of the sheepfold's boundaries, then one's no longer within that safe area of the sheepfold. It's dangerous out there. And to try and exist outside the sheepfold is to try to live outside of God's protective boundaries that consist of his laws and commands, his principles, and his patterns. Now, let me give you some examples of the sheepfold method of perceiving God's word and in so doing, setting up the boundaries in which we are to live in liberty as redeemed folks. Earlier I gave you four examples of the several theological issues that systematic theology addresses. The law, eternal salvation, Sabbath, and the deity of Christ. I have no intention of declaring a right answer or pouring, pointing out a wrong one or producing a new doctrine or criticizing an existing one about any of these subjects. Rather, I'm only intending to show you how Scripture constructs a sheepfold, not a wall, for a believer. Let's begin with the subject of the law. Now, I'm going to use only New Testament verses to create some posts in our sheepfold. However, there are so many New Testament passages about the law and each of the other three examples, that I can only use a few or we'd be here for hours. But the idea is just to give you a sampling of aspects of New Testament views of the law, eternal security, Sabbath, and the deity of Christ. Hopefully I've found a way to balance them between what some might regard as negative 
and positive or pro and con. Okay? Because I'm not trying to prove a point of view. So here's some examples. Matthew 5.17 Don't think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've come not to abolish but to complete. Galatians 3.24 forms another post. Accordingly, the Torah functioned as a custodian until the Messiah came so that we might be declared righteous on the ground of trusting and being faithful. Another post in the ground. Galatians 5.18 But if you're led by the Spirit then you are not in subjugation, in subjection to the system that revolt, results from perverting the Torah into legalism. Galatians 5.4 You who are trying to be declared righteous by God through legalism have severed yourselves from the Messiah. You've fallen away from God's grace. Now we've established four posts in our sheepfold that concerns the law. And just very quickly summed up, the law is not abolished. The law was to act as a custodian for God's people. But on the other hand, if one is led by the Holy Spirit, then the Torah system is not our source for righteousness. And if one is saved and tries to use the law, the Torah, as our righteousness, then we have fallen away from the grace provided by the God through Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, these four of many aspects of the law are equally valid. When used together, they help to establish a set of boundaries concerning the law that we can operate within. Modern systematic theological principles, however, don't allow for a doctrine that's flexible in this way. Indeed, one verse one facet of the law is pitted against another. And we must choose one best answer and at times explain away the others or relegate the remaining answers at scriptural verses to less relevancy. Let's take a look at the matter of eternal security. John 3.36 Whoever trusts in the Son has eternal life. But whoever disobeys the Son will not see that life, but remains subject to God's wrath. Titus 3.5 He delivered us. It was not on the grounds of any righteous deeds we've done, but on the grounds of His own mercy. He did it by means of the mikvah, the immersion of rebirth, and the renewal brought about by the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. John 10.28 I give them eternal life. They will absolutely never be destroyed and no one will snatch them from my hands. Romans 11.22 So take a good look at God's kindness and His severity. On the one hand, severity towards those who fell off, but on the other hand, God's kindness towards you. Provided you maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. Okay, here's four more posts. Marking the boundaries of our sheepfold. And these concern our eternal security. And in the, just this small sampling of the many verses concerning this subject, we see that in this sampling at least, it was the Lord who delivered us, and our redemption has nothing to do with our own merits or our deeds. That all who trust God's Son have eternal life, but on the other hand, those who disobey the Son will be subject to God's wrath. 
Further, no created being of any kind can snatch a saved person away from Messiah Yeshua. But then again, must one is required to maintain oneself in God's kindness or he'll cut you off. Now notice that these are pretty wide-ranging comments on the same issue. Notice how multifaceted the subject of eternal life is and that there are several aspects that are covered in these scriptures and they're all true simultaneously. The problem we face in the standard orthodoxy heresy system of creating a doctrine is that these four aspects of eternal security are sufficiently different enough that we're forced to to accept one aspect as most true and then figure out what to do with the other ones. Let's take a look at just a few of the several New Testament passages concerning the Sabbath. Hebrews 4.9 So there remains a Shabbat keeping for God's people. Luke 23.56 Then they went back home to prepare spices and ointments. On Shabbat, the women rested in obedience to the commandment. Colossians 2.16 Don't let anyone pass judgment on you in connection with eating and drinking or in regard to a Jewish festival or Rosh Hodesh or Shabbat. Acts 20. 7. On Motzei Shabbat, when we were gathered to break bread, Shaul, Paul, addressed them since he was going to leave the next day. He kept talking till midnight. Now, I'm staying with the complete Jewish Bible in every case here, so we're consistent. Motzei Shabbat simply means the day after Sabbath, the, the first day of the week, Sunday, today. Okay. And with these four more posts, our sheepfold boundaries are starting to fill out a bit. Concerning the Sabbath, we see the aspects that a a Sabbath keeping is still in effect. And in fact, the believing women who tended to Christ observed the Sabbath in order to obey the commandment. On the other hand, how exactly one goes around observing the Sabbath isn't to be judged by anybody. And further, that while Sabbath... Friday night to Saturday night is the king of days. It's not the only acceptable day of meeting for believers as we find Paul meeting with other disciples on the first day of the week, Sunday. Let's take a look at the deity of Christ. John 1.14 The word became a human being and lived with us and we saw his Shekinah, saw his glory, the glory of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. John 10.30 I and the Father are one. John 14.28 You heard me tell you I am leaving and I will come back to you. If you loved me, you would have been glad that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. Hebrews 2.9 But we do see Yeshua, who indeed was made for a little while lower than the angels now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by God's grace he might taste death for all humanity. And here, just four of some of the most important sheepfold posts that act as boundaries for we sheep. Christ was indeed a human being. But he was also God's son. Yeshua was one with the Father in one sense 
And yet, in another sense, Jesus pronounces that the Father is greater than He is. There was even a time when the divine Jesus was made lower than angels. That that we can't fully understand how some of these aspects of Yeshua harmonize with the others is irrelevant. They're all true. And we should not be trying to explain any of them away or explaining one aspect as overriding any of the others. Now, while there are many other aspects of our sheepfold that we're certainly not going to discuss today, the whole point is that by perceiving God's Word this way, we can easily move from this unyielding orthodoxy heresy viewpoint of either or to the more scriptural viewpoint of this and. We are permitted by the Lord to move closer or further away from one aspect or the other inside the scriptural sheepfold. But provided that we do not add to or subtract from God's word by creating our own doctrines and philosophies and thus find ourselves outside of that sheepfold, then all is well. And regardless of where we stand inside of this sheepfold, we remain united and in harmony with the Lord. Suddenly, all this disharmony among believers begins to fade away. Splintered denominations don't have much left to argue. You may not have realized it, but this way of discovering the boundaries of the sheepfold as opposed to the way of constructing a doctrinal wall is how I've presented Torah class to you since the beginning. And if you will consider, just consider, accepting this kind of a mindset, I believe that you will find great peace in it. And you will find common ground with other brethren that up to now seemed utterly impossible. So armed with this understanding, I think it's time to end our detour and we'll circle back to 1 Samuel which we'll take up in earnest next time.